We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Buras of the China Post. Hi, good evening. And on the telephone from Taijong by regular commentator Donovan Smith. And great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the National Communications Commission defending the drafting of a Digital Communications Act, Honhai's plans to make quantum computing Taiwan's next tech miracle, the Taiwan Solidarity Union seeking to replace the national anthem, China Airlines unveiling a newly delivered cargo jet which highlights the image of Taiwan on its fuselage, the Health Promotion Administration calling for the continuing reduction of betel nut chewing, and a call by the chairman of the organising committee for the London 2012 Olympic Games for Taiwan to host more world-class sporting events. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen earlier this week attending the official launch of an upgraded version of the Navy's Torjung-class missile corvette and the commissioning of a new rapid mine-laying vessel. Now speaking at the event at the Long De Shipbuilding Company's shipyard in Ilan, Tsai described it as an important development in the government's indigenous shipbuilding program and went on to say that Taiwan could now become a supplier of weapons to Western democracies. Tsai also said that Taiwan is beginning to see the results of her administration's decision to pursue self-sufficiency and national defence capability and a long line of recent developments is ensuring that thorough and comprehensive progress is being made there. Tsai and the DPP have of course made boosting defence capabilities a priority to ensure that Taiwan is self-sufficient as possible amid growing military threats from Beijing and there has been talk in defence circles of exporting small arms and some defence tech in recent years making a comment at a ship launch. That was a bit different Donovan, that was a bit of a biggie really, wouldn't it? I mean, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, those ships, the problem is who would diplomatically be willing to take the risk to buy one of those ships? Um, there's, you know, maybe the U.S. could, but they wouldn't because they have their own defense industry to boost. I mean, I get her point that fundamentally, you know, the de- developing a, de- a local defense industry is very expensive. And so if you can export that obviously brings down the cost per unit for Taiwan and, of course, boosts the businesses behind them. But obviously, if you're going to sell some major uh, things like those ships, uh, the mine-laying things, the, the, these kinds of things, most countries, either they'll do it themselves, the ones that have the muscle and the willpower to stand up to China, but the kind of countries that might be interested in buying them that don't have their own defense industry probably would run into a lot of problems with China. Now, if you've got smaller arms, uh, I, I'm sure that you know there wouldn't be a major diplomatic uh, incident over that. I mean, obviously Taiwan has great machine tooling tech and is you know very well positioned to make a lot of small armaments, and those would probably not create a, a diplomatic incident, I would assume. But I, I think they're they're kind of dreaming if they're if they're going to uh, you know export those those Corvettes and that kind of thing. Well, I mostly agree with you on this. It's mostly a declaration of intent by the president aimed at taxpayers in Taiwan to justify the cost of producing ships, submarines, missiles and fighter jets in Taiwan. There is no market for Taiwan weapon systems in Asia and around the world for two reasons. Number one, our biggest diplomatic ally is the biggest arms seller worldwide. So we don't want to compete against the United States and more importantly, we cannot. 
A fancy plane or boat doesn't equal to a supply chain or weapon systems. I don't know if you remember the uh, Taiwan IDF. Taiwan has never managed to turn it into an export product because many parts actually come from the US and Taiwan doesn't does not own the rights to resell them. Another reason is that Taiwan is too isolated politically to use its diplomacy to boost arms sales. For example, it took several high-ranking officials' visit to India for the French to sell their Mirage plane, Mirage planes in, in India. So, more importantly, Taiwan diplomatic allies cannot afford to buy any major military equipment. So, the statement of the, by the president is likely aimed at Taiwanese media and local supporters. And of course, Donovan, she mentioned, she mentioned Western countries. Uh, Western democracies were her words. And of course, you... Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, most of the major Western democracies have their own domestic industries. So I'm not sure who she's really thinking about there. Um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Denmark or something. I, I, you know, maybe Belgium. I, I don't know if they have a major industry of their own. Obviously, the Swedes do, the, you know, the Dutch do, uh, the British, the French. Um, and of course, so I think actually, you know, the the kind of markets where people might be willing to buy, at least maybe not the big ticket items, but you know, smaller, smaller down the the scale there would probably be countries outside of the West, um, the Middle East. Obviously, there's a lot of arms buying there, um, and of course, Taiwan has uh, you, you know the, the countries that diplomatically recognize it might buy some small stuff from Taiwan. They don't really have the budgets for anything particularly big. Uh, Palau probably could use some small Coast Guard vessels from uh, Taiwan because they uh, just started arresting Chinese fishermen uh, who were uh, illegally in their waters uh, fishing for uh, sea cucumber. So, you know, maybe they'll need some of those small things. But I, I, I don't see the Western democracy being the major market. And of course, Dimitri, you can tout you want only want to supply weapons to democracies, but of course, if you sell weapons, you don't always guarantee these weapons are going to turn up in the hands of democratic people. Well, it's it's another. I think it's really a naive statement. You don't sell weapons only to good guys because good guys and bad guys actually buy their weapons from the same suppliers. So it would be. I think even super hard for the president to explain if any kind of weapon system ended up in a war between a diplomatic ally and another country because, well, this is something I don't think the Taiwan public would maybe accept. You know, if they did manage to find some buyers, I, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, for example, you, if you remember during the Arab Spring in Egypt, uh, there was a lot of outrage at how uh, a lot of the tear gas canisters and the things that the military were using against the protesters were all American-made and American-supplied. Um, so, you know, even if, for example, there was something, a niche product that Taiwan made that was better than, say, an equivalent American one, and they did buy some of those things, they may turn around and supply, their, you know, those to other markets around the world. So, you know, where, even if you can guarantee that, it's a Western democracy buying the product. There's no guarantee that they won't turn around and it'll end up in a civil war in, say, Libya. We, we just don't know. 
Anyway, moving on now, while the dust from the closure of Zhong Tian's news channel is yet to really settle, talk of a planned Digital Communications Act raised further iry feelings among some this week, and National Communications Commission Chairman Chen Yaosheng was forced to defend the act amid charges that it was aimed at censoring the internet. Now, Chen told reporters that the government would never engage in internet censorship as it's a free, open and innovative space, and the bill is solely geared towards regulating inappropriate content on online speech platforms. Now, According to the NCC chairman, his office is still drafting the bill and will seek the opinions of all parties involved before presenting its final version for review to lawmakers. Now, Chen's defence of the act came after KMT Taipei City Councillor Law Jiazheng described the Digital Communications Act as an attempt by the DPP government to gag free speech and put internet censorship into law. The NCC proposed a similar Digital Communications Act, of course, in 2018, which covered social media platforms and stated that cases of misinformation or fake news posted on places like Facebook, YouTube or Instagram or elsewhere could be reported to the Commission. Needless to say though, that bill went absolutely nowhere as lawmakers voted it down due to concerns, well, about its internet censorship. Now, the National Communications Commission has scheduled a hearing on the act that it hopes to now push forward next Monday. So, Dimitri, um, complains about more censorship. Well, again, this is like untimely and inappropriate, uh, the proposal. Uh, I think the NCC should maybe express more concern about the quality of television programs across news channels rather than trying to control what people think or say. Uh, several countries and social media platforms have already failed at this kind of game and Taiwan authorities should think twice before trying to define what is politically correct or not. Since CTI News was kicked out of the cable system uh, a week ago, their YouTube subscription reached already 2.3 million subscribers. So, well, the story is the more you hit your opponents, the more likely you're going to make them stronger. So, well, well, we need to wait until the final proposals is unveiled on Monday, but I'm not really not optimistic about this. Of course, Donovan, do you agree with Dimitri there? Maybe the NCC should have kept shtum about this for a few weeks while, you know, the Zhongtian saga died down a bit. Uh, yeah, their timing on this wasn't very good. Um, obviously, uh, you know, bringing this up now with, with uh, CTI uh, news being just taken down, uh, it, it, you know, and the, there has been some polling which shows that there is, I think it was 54% or something were against shutting down CTI. Um, so there, there is a bit of public support behind the KMT on this. It's not strong, um, considering how, how passionate Taiwan is about its freedoms and its press freedoms. That's a relatively low support level for that channel. But uh, it still shows that the, the KMT has some traction on this issue, particularly with its own base. Um, so, yeah, their, their timing was particularly bad. Now, as to what the, the act will address, it's not very specific. As Dimitri noted, we, you know, we kind of need to see what the details are. I know that there are suspicions because it, it looks like it would include um, – you know, uh, things like uh, Zhonghua Telecom's MOD, where CTI News is still on the air, in spite of, I've noticed in uh, Focus Taiwan, there's been multiple articles which said that it was supposed to be, that it was going to be taken down along with the cable channel. Uh, but it, it is still on MOD. So there is, uh, I know that the, in the KMT at least, they think that that is 
what this new law is set there to target, target them, their YouTube channel and target their MOD channel. Now, I don't know if that's the case because we haven't actually seen the law come out. Then that gets to the other, the next issue. There already is and already are mechanisms in Taiwan and laws in place to deal with online content. So, you know, what exactly they're proposing to add above and beyond those, I don't really know. Right now, personal insults and things like that online can be prosecuted um, already. If there's fake news, it can be ordered to be taken down. There, you know, so what exactly and how exactly they want to expand it and what the target is needs to be clarified so that we, we can see exactly what it is they want to do. Probably, or most likely, they want to be able to counter um, misinformation campaigns coming out of China. That would be the most likely candidate for what their their real target is. But we don't really know at this point. And of course, Dimitri, this does come after there was concern about local pundits here in Taiwan appearing on internet programs in China. Well, it's not illegal so far. The, you need to define what is legal and what is not legal first before you try to stop people from doing stuff. But right now, this new proposal fits and feeds this narrative that it's uh, the ruling party is trying to, well, to kind of control or what people can say or or think, which, well, that makes this whole proposal really, really untimely. This is not the right time to do that. And turning to some high-tech business news now, Honhai Chairman Liu Yangwei told delegates at the first Quantum Technology Forum in Taipei this past weekend that quantum technology development will create the next semiconductor technology miracle in Taiwan. And according to Yang, Honhai's Quantum Technology Institute is looking to develop advanced core technologies over the next three to seven years. And to learn more about quantum technology and how, in the Honhai Chairman's words, it will drive Taiwan's electronic sector to enter a new era, I have Bloomberg opinion writer Tim Culpin on the phone. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, Gavin. Good to talk to you. So let's start right at the very beginning, and in layman's terms, what is quantum technology? Well, quantum technology or quantum computing is uh, is a kind of a discipline of, of mathematics, computer science, I guess physics too. And if you think about it, computing itself as we know it today, uh, computers run on the concept of uh, ones and zeros, something that's either switched on or switched off. It exists or it doesn't exist. It's, very, it's binary, essentially. And so all computer circuits uh, in semiconductors are based on this idea of being a one or a zero. Uh, and with quantum computing, there's another state, which is uh, held by what is called a qubit. We know about bits and bytes in, uh, in semiconductors. Well, there's something else called a qubit, a Q-U-B-I-T. And that's a state that's somewhere between a one and a zero. And so by having a state that is somewhere in between uh, and then doing further computation on that state, we can basically compute uh, more quickly, more efficiently. I think one thing that needs to be uh, understood is that a standard binary computer can do everything that a quantum computing computer could do and vice versa. But the quantum computer would do it more quickly, more efficiently, and many times, you know, hundreds of times more quickly or more efficiently. But the actual abilities of a quantum computer versus a standard binary computer are fundamentally the same. 
right, that was easy. Now I understand quantum technology. But of course, of course, Honhai's expansion from hardware manufacturing into quantum technology is getting a boost because of its QHub Lab project, which apparently it's launching in collaboration with the National Taiwan University's Department of Physics. Yes, so uh, everywhere around the world, uh, organizations, companies that are, you know, corporations that are getting into quantum computing, whether it's Foxconn or even Google or others, they are collaborating with uh, academic institutions. That's because we're really at a very new leading edge of essentially mathematics, uh, computer science, semiconductors, and so forth. So you do need a lot of academic research involved. And so you want the brightest minds from around the world to be collaborating with you. Foxconn, uh, you know, they will have computing available. They, they have now access to semiconductor technology and so forth. They can bring to the table a lot of the hardware and, and uh, processing power uh, that the academics would need for this. And, of course, the academics have that, that uh, academic knowledge and research that they can bring to the table. So it makes sense for companies like Foxconn to collaborate with academic institutions. And do you know, would you know much about the QHub Lab project? Well, it's very conceptual at this stage. The idea, I mean, quantum computing is very conceptual. There is examples of quantum computers out there, and, and some uh, have actually solved problems, and, and the theory is that they've done so better than uh, standard uh, binary computers. But at this stage, the Q-Hub is really about putting uh, you know, smart, uh, like-minded people together to develop technologies and even a theoretical basis behind these technologies. So I wouldn't be expecting that you're going to find a... Uh, you know, a quantum computing server or an iPhone produced tomorrow. This is one of those slow burn kind of development uh, ideas that Foxconn's putting together. So I think we need to wait, you know, quite a few years before we see actual tangible results coming out of it. And of course, they're also hoping to collaborate with the, the public sector as well as the private sector and academic sectors. Yeah, it makes sense for the Taiwan government to be on board. Uh, the Taiwan government itself, uh, you know, for 30, 40 years has been behind the major industries that have been successful in Taiwan plastics and, of course, semiconductors. Uh, you know, semiconductor industry was born out of uh, a Taiwan-funded institution. So Taiwan wants to be among the leaders in quantum computing, so they're putting their money where their mouth is, and that makes sense. But what about this new era for Taiwan in electronic development or in technology development? Well, quantum computing is coming, uh, and so... Taiwan will want to be a part of it. It's as simple as that. If, if they're not part of it, then they'll be left behind. So I think that there's a lot of people who are very excited and might be getting ahead of themselves in terms of when they expect tangible results from, from development of quantum computing technology. But that doesn't mean people shouldn't jump on board because you want to be part of that early foundation of knowledge. And as you move it out of academic institutions into the corporate environment, into, say, quantum servers, semiconductors, software and so forth, you want to be those institutions that are being part of that conversation. And of course, the Ministry of Science and Technology here in Taiwan is pledging to invest some 8 billion NT in quantum technology development over the next five years. I think that's a great idea. I, you know, I think that uh, taxpayers would be right to you know, say, well, where's this money going? Is there going to be tangible benefits? Is there a dividend? But at the same time, uh, fundamental research can't always be looked at in that way. Uh, I think when we look back years later and look at all this money that was spent, definitely people will scratch their heads and go, well, was that a waste of money? But it, it shouldn't be thought of as simplistically as that. You need to put money in to get people to come, for example, come to Taiwan, get experts from around the world to come to Taiwan and work with uh, Taiwanese scientists. 
So it's very, very good, in my opinion, that the government is willing to put money down and help uh, boost industry and academic collaboration. And of course, we've been talking about Honhai here, but what about TSMC and UMC? Are they going to jump on the quantum technology bandwagon? Oh, I absolutely think they will. We're, I think we're away away from uh, you know having quantum uh, semiconductors being fabbed uh, anywhere uh, soon. But I think when it does happen, you'll definitely expect to see TSMC be one of those companies uh, that people will turn to to help manufacture quantum computing chips. Uh, I don't think they've got really anything ready to go right now. But they, again, like Foxconn and like other companies, they'll be looking into it and trying to work out what they need to know and prepare for as these needs arise in the coming decades. And do you see a problem here? Because, of course, a lot of these companies have production facilities in China. And, of course, the government might want to keep its quantum technology development slightly a bit secret. Well, semiconductor is not a problem because there's almost no Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing in China. TSMC has uh, one or two fabs in China, but they're not leading edge. UMC is a little bit different. They've had some controversies in the way that the company has dealt with uh, Chinese partners. But essentially, at the semiconductor level, uh, the Taiwanese uh, technology is very much uh, planted in Taiwan and safe in Taiwan. If you're talking about Foxconn and those kinds of companies, I think initially, because it would be very, very low volume and not labor-intensive when uh, quantum uh, computing servers come out, I don't think you would need to go to a low-priced uh, low uh, place like China uh, to, to make them, you could make them in small quantities in, in Taiwan or even in the United States. They have facilities in the U.S. So I don't think that's a big concern at this stage. And what type of financial payback are these companies looking at when they've developed quantum technology in the coming, so we say, five or six, seven years, even ten years? I don't think they have a clue, to be honest. I don't think anybody knows what the, what the payback will be. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, there is definitely a correlation between the time and money you spend on R&D today versus the profits and the, the margins that you can get sometime into the future. And so really it comes down to making sure that you're ahead of the curve. You're one of the leading edge uh, companies in the space so that you can uh, be the first ones to get the contracts to build this stuff or supply this stuff and also have a certain amount of pricing power to say, hey, you know, our stuff is, is top of the line. You should pay a premium for it. And that helps profits. But at this stage, I don't think anyone would be uh, even, even gutsy enough to go out and say what kind of return on investment will be possible on this kind of uh, investment. And that was me in conversation with Bloomberg columnist Tim Culpin. We have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the Taiwan Solidarity Union is seeking to replace the island's national anthem. And according to party chairman Liu Yi-de, the current national anthem is based on the words of Sun Yat-sen and is a party song. That's, of course, not a party party song, such as Wang Chung's Everyone Have Fun Tonight, but instead one adopted by the KMT as the Republic of China's national anthem in 1930. Now, speaking to reporters, the TSU chairman said that with President Tsai Ing-wen now in her second term in office, it's ridiculous that the anthem remains in use as it was adopted by a non-democratic government and is out of touch with modern-day Taiwan. And Leo says the party now plans to host about 15 conferences island-wide in the coming months to discuss the issue of replacing the national anthem with the general public. So, Dimitri, they're going to replace the national anthem, or is it just one of those things they, they come out with every now and often, which they've said it before, of course, they're going to replace the national anthem, but it's a bit of a difficult thing to do. 
Well, this is another useless proposal. Um, the ruling and the opposition parties cannot agree on anything, and on issues ranging from like national health to changing the constitution. Uh, our company, our mother company, held a forum on uh, changing the constitution of the Republic of China uh, a week ago, and during the whole uh, the whole uh, seminar, uh, you could see r the running and the opposition parties unable to agree on anything and on and anyway. So uh, again, they always set the bar very very high, but. I think what really matters is from how you move from A to B instead of setting the B higher and higher. Unless you solve this problem, you sell, you sell, you change this mentality in Taiwan that in a democratic country the winner takes all. Once you win an election, you do whatever you want. You, we should move forward and maybe find ways to solve small issues one at a time instead of always aiming for the big issue and then you have you end up with a big clash at the legislative event. Yeah. <coughs> Um, well, for me, the big news about this story was that the TSU still exists. Um, the, uh, it, it smells to me like this is an exercise by the TSU to try and make themselves relevant again. It's been quite a while since they've had any representation in the legislature. Now, to get this passed, they're going to have to be able to find partners in the legislature to work with them. And you'll notice that so far, the most obvious candidates would be the NPP and um, the Taiwan State Building Party. Neither of them have so far said anything about it, and certain members of, of the DPP might also be supportive. Now, you know, I think that probably most people in the DPP would support such a move, but I don't think that uh, President Tsai is going to put in any political capital behind it. And now I think that she personally doesn't like the uh, the national anthem. Most famously, when she ran the first time and lost against Ma Ying-jeou in 2012, she was seen on the news not singing along with the anthem. Um, but she, you'll notice that there's been a whole series of things which have come out in the legislature, proposals to change the constitution, change the name, change all kinds of things. And you'll notice they all quietly go to die. And I'm pretty sure that what's happening in these cases is that an individual legislator will come out and say, you know, we want to change this, like remove references from China in the Constitution. And then you never hear about it again. So I think what's happening is, is that President Tsai is keeping her powder dry in her political capital for more important things, like trying to get a free trade deal with the United States, trying to reform the military, trying to get those major issues done and not spending too much political capital on these other issues, which will turn very, very divisive very, very fast. And that would eat up a whole lot of political capital, which I think she'd much rather spend on you know, getting more armaments from the U.S., or on you know, reforming the reserves, or possibly extending military conscription, uh, which I know is being bandied about as a possibility. You'll also notice that when the transition, um, the Transitional Justice Commission first came in, there was a lot of talk about how they were going to make some, they were going to come to some conclusions and make some decisions on everything from what's on the coins to what they're going to do with the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall to, you know, road names, 
again, it all went quiet. They stopped talking about any of those things. It went totally quiet, and they've been focusing mostly on on uh, rehabilitating former political prisoners and documenting uh, <clears throat> past transgressions during the martial law era and have completely backed away from those issues. If there's going to be any move on these issues during the Thai presidency, it would most likely be near the end of her, uh, her second term. And of course, Dimitri, if they do say they're going to change the national anthem, they then have to find a new national anthem. Now, I'm going to sound like a right pessimist here, but do you think if it's the current government that does this, they could have a competition? Well, the, well, the competition, I'm, I'm just scared of what the national anthem would be if it's going to be about bubble tea or like they did with the rush with changing the Taiwanese passport. Uh, the thing is, uh, most many countries are looking towards Taiwan right now to try to look and see how well the Taiwanese people manage the crisis and the pandemic. But we're just again, we're about to start spinning around again and just end up in endless fight. The last fight at the Legislative UN got a huge coverage uh, in foreign countries because they couldn't understand how they could just fight uh, this way in the parliament. So I just hope that it's not going to turn into another fight and just, well, uh, something that, well, uh, it's, not pop- it's not a good thing for the, for the brand of Taiwan. Maybe they should just pick everyone have fun tonight by oh, Wang yeah. Chung, yeah? Well, maybe Jay Cho has... <laughs> Some a couple of good songs, maybe they maybe could look into that too. Anyway, staying with the sort of same issue, it was China Airlines' 61st anniversary on Wednesday of this week. Now, we last talked about China Airlines being asked to change the design on its fuselage of its aircraft to highlight images that represent Taiwan on our November the 27th show. But this anniversary week, the carrier actually unveiled a newly delivered Boeing 777 cargo jet and it highlights the image of Taiwan on its, well, fuselage. The shape of Taiwan has been integrated into the first capital letter of the word cargo, while China Airlines has reduced the size of its English language designation and moved it to the rear of the fuselage, close to the tail. However, the carrier has kept the image of a blossoming red plum flower that is displayed on the vertical tail fin. While the aircraft we're talking about is a cargo plane and only the first of six such models ordered by China Airlines, Deputy Transport Minister Wang Guotai on Wednesday said that updated livery for the airline's passenger jets are also now in development. Now, DPP officials had a press conference at which they touted the change, but some are admitted that could, well, it could be more Taiwanese-ish. But some, including pop radio talk show host Huang Weihan, were warning about problems arising from the change and he told his audience that the new design could mean that China Airlines aircraft with the design may be unable to leave Taiwan. So Donovan, did the design go far enough for you? Well, uh, what the the legislature put... Uh, they passed a resolution which they sent, uh, which they tasked the Ministry of Transportation and Communications to come up with it, and it was a multi-stage plan. And so the first stage was to put more Taiwan imagery and make Air China, or sorry, China Airlines <laughs> uh, smaller on on the plane. So they're they're actually carrying through with with the instruction from the legislature, the first one. I, I, I didn't, you know, on my personal opinion, I didn't think they did a very good job of it. It now looks like it's cargo airlines rather than China Airlines. Or, and the, the shape of Taiwan in the sea, you have to really know your geography if you're outside of Taiwan to know what that is. 
so they they instructed um, the the ministry to put you know more Taiwan themed stuff in the first stage on the planes, and that not very visible image of Taiwan I, I felt didn't really cut it. Um, However, the next stage is that they're supposed to look into the possibility of changing the airline's name um, and livery and the whole thing. And so that's the next stage. So the real question is whether or not they get to that and if they can come up with a, a, val- a, a realistic plan to make that happen. And Dimitri, the, the cargo sea with the Taiwan map in it? Well, I just don't get it because I think it's kind of obvious again. They're just rushing through this and they're making exactly the same mistake the KMT did a hundred years ago when they used a party song to become the national anthem. This logo is actually on, it's exactly the same logo as the DPP's uh, uh, party flag. And so we're going to end up in putting this logo everywhere. And then one day some people will say, why do we have, why should we have a logo there? And we're going to change it again. Changing a logo, changing a company name or a passport, it takes time. We should think of this really carefully for months and years. Uh, I remember writing a story about comparing this new Taiwanese passport and the uh, passport from uh, Sweden, I think. I think they spent years in studying this issue and they didn't rush like that in a couple of months to come up with a new fancy design. Well, as you mentioned, well, most people don't have a clue of what is this, uh, you know, island icon on the on the logo. So you're actually creating more issues instead, again, of solving the problem. So, well, I'm kind of disappointed again. Well, I mean, you realize that they don't really need to put a whole lot of time into it. All they need to do is slap on an image of bubble milk tea and bang, you're done. Yeah, well, but (laughs) who wants to fly in a bubble tea plane? (laughs) 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 Sorry, but... (laughs) Some people might. We have a Hello Kitty plane. Well, Hello Kitty, maybe. Yeah, we do. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, moving away from the ridiculous and talking about something more serious, now the National Health Research Institute and the Health Promotion Administration were busy earlier this week talking about the government's success in introducing measures to reduce the prevalence of betel nut use. Now, according to Yang Yi Shin, an investigator at the National Institutes of Cancer Research, more than 90% of oral cancer patients chew betel nuts, and oral cancer is the fourth leading cause of cancer deaths among men here in Taiwan. And she told reporters that a recent study by the Health Promotion Administration showed that the introduction of public health measures has resulted in the prevalence of rate of betel nut chewing dropping by 17.2% in 2007 to below 7% in 2018. Now, that decline rate was most among men aged 30 to 39, and that dropped by about 1.7% year on year. Now, public health measures aimed at reducing betel nut use in recent years have included health promotion programmes aimed at raising public awareness about the dangers of chewing betel nut on campuses and in local communities, an increase in programs geared towards getting people to quit betel nut and also moves to encourage betel nut farmers to grow, well, other crops. So, Donovan, I mean, how to stop people from chewing betel nut? Well, I mean, I don't know how much their uh, public education campaigns have done. Uh, how, you know, how much of this change is due to that. I think some things, like, for example, the shortened conscription period to four months, that would probably have a big impact because that was where generally young men would learn to smoke cigarettes, chew betel nuts, that kind of thing. 
So, um, you know, I, I don't know how much is these things, or just simply changing, uh, changing society. Because, of course, when you're chewing betel nut, you, you basically look like you've been chewing on a raw animal. Um, and, you know, your, your mouth is full of blood. It's not a great look, I think. Um, but one way or another, it looks like, you know, the, the, the rates are now down below 7%, which is staggering if you've been in Taiwan for as long as we have. Um, you know, it used to be so prevalent, and now it's pretty rare. You just don't see it that much anymore. Well, yes, this is, uh, I think, is, is very important. It's timely. Um, um, maybe young, many young Taiwanese people maybe were not aware uh, of the danger of, of chewing betel nuts like that all day. It might be a bit hard to change the way maybe our truck drivers or maybe uh, bus drivers, you, you can't change, they can't change their job. So there's a stress associated with the job. So that's maybe the reason why they start chewing betel nuts. It's like, uh, well, if you want to quit smoking, sometimes you have also you have to look into the way uh, your uh, lifestyle, the way you do things that that's, will potentially help you in in quitting uh, smoking. But beyond that, and uh, in terms of uh, health uh, safety issues, Taiwan has a lot of work to do. And uh, after betel nuts, I hope they look into maybe. Uh, those snacks you eat, uh, fried snacks you eat at those uh, night markets. These are uh, health hazards, and we should. There should be young people should be more aware of these issues. I mean, Donovan, you mentioned being here a long time. I mean, obviously, back a long time ago. I won't say it, thirty years ago. Yeah, I said it thirty years ago. Hey, of course, hey. of course, of course. Many people chew beef, not including young people. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it was very common back then. Um, and uh, often, uh, you know, you'd be offered them all the time. You'd go into, you know, bars. A lot of people would be chewing them. And so they were pretty much, they, they were pretty ubiquitous at one time. Um, I don't know what the exact usage rates were, but just, you know, from my memory, uh, it was, it would have been, a, you know, I don't know if it was a majority of men, but certainly it was a significant minority would. Um, but now, now it's it's. I mean, you just don't see it that much now. And of course, Dimitri, you just don't see the red stains on the on the sidewalk as much as once upon a time you used to. Yes, less. But maybe there's also another reason because uh, young Taiwanese don't go to the military anymore. So usually, uh, when you go to the army, that's where you learn to smoke, to drink, and sometimes chew betel nuts. So um, because of the end of the military compulsory military service, maybe less people now are exposed at a very young age at chewing betel nuts. Anyway, before we go this week, the Deputy Chairman of the Organising Committee for the London 2012 Olympic Games, Sir Keith Mills, recently penned an article for Commonwealth magazine in which he called for Taiwan to take steps to win the hosting rights for more international sporting events. Titled Taiwan Should Host More World-Class Sporting Events in the Post-Pandemic World, Mills wrote that international sports can have confidence in awarding Taiwan hosting rights as Taiwan is already well-positioned to be an Asian hub for international sport. Now, Mills touted the Swinging Skirts LPGA tournament in Taiwan, which is popular. Brings in a lot of women golfers from all over the world. The most famous women golfers from all over the world, in fact. He also touted the King of the Mountain Bicycle Challenge, which is when cyclists from all over the world, except this year, cycle up a big mountain in Hua, in Hualien County. Very international event. But he also talked about sailing Donovan. 
Yeah. Um, apparently, he's never been in the Taiwan Strait. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, obviously, parts of Taiwan are... Uh, you know, are, have very nice coastlines, and there, there are now finally some yachting um, facilities. Uh, but the Taiwan Strait is, is famously uh, difficult to sail, so uh, that seems to me kind of like a, a, a dangerous uh, suggestion. And of course, Dimitri, he also talks about infrastructure. Well, yeah, that's that's true. To, to, to promote sailing in Taiwan, you need more than uh, an international event. You need a proper fan base. You need infrastructures. You need a sports goods market. And, and more importantly, you need sponsors. So uh, I don't know, but I've been also in Taiwan for some time. And really, Taiwanese are afraid of the sun and the water. And they usually stay away from the beach. Uh you know that the, for example, the next America's Cup will unfold in New Zealand in 2021. I'm pretty much sure that most Taiwanese don't have a clue about this. It's sponsored by Omega and Prada this year. So when you look at the market, potential market in Taiwan, when you visit and you go to the coastlines, the, the small ports around Taiwan, you usually don't see any yachts. Most people just don't go sailing. There is no, there is, this is not part of the local culture. And if you compare, for example, if you try to export a sport like American football, for example, you would see, for example, in Taiwan, it, it's, there is no fan base. It, Taiwanese people are interested in sport when some Taiwanese atle athletes perform well on that specific competition. But when the competition is over, they usually just look at something else. They're not that interested into sports. They like local sports, but they're not into that major leagues uh, around the world. Uh, if there are no Taiwanese, it's going really to be really hard to promote such a sport. And that's where we have to leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. It was great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.